Open up your Bibles, if you would, this morning to Mark chapter 8, verse 22. We're going to study verses 22 through 33 today. We are walking verse by verse through the earthly life and ministry of our Lord Jesus in this series that we've entitled Seeing and Savoring Jesus Christ. Today we're coming to a very important and pivotal event in the overall narrative of Jesus' earthly ministry. Mark chapter 8, verses 22 through 33. This event is recorded in all three synoptic gospels in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And Mark's gospel, the one we're looking at today primarily, this event is positioned as the center point, therefore the focal point of his gospel. So it's an important event. What is the event I'm referring to? Well, it's Peter's confession of Jesus as the Christ, the Son of the living God. It's the second half of the text we'll look at today. We're not going to start with Peter's confession. We're going to start with the healing of a blind man that happens just before Peter's confession. And in starting with that miracle, we will see three big spiritual truths being communicated to us by Jesus in regards to how it is that people come to see and believe that Jesus is indeed Lord. So please stand, if you would, as we read this passage of Scripture. Mark chapter 8, verses 22 through 23. The word of the Lord says, And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man, and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hand on his eyes again. And he opened his eyes, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter enter the village. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked the disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. And others say, Elijah. And others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would go before us this morning as we study this text. And give us eyes to see. Give us ears to hear. Help us, Lord, to see what the miracle at the beginning of this text is pointing us to. And Lord, I pray that we, as a response to what we read and study today, will be people who exalt you more and recognize your sovereign grace even more. 
So, Lord, we thank you for those that could be here this morning. Pray now that you guide this time, that you give me a mouth to speak. And like I said, get all of us ears to hear. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Now, there are certain things that, certain things in pop culture that are sort of like cultural timepieces or, or time markers, if you will. Uh, for example, when you hear the word disco, what decade do you think of? 70s. When you hear the word Rubik's Cube, what decade do you think of? The 80s, right? Um, well, one of the cultural icons of the 90s were these infuriating little pictures called magic eye pictures. Remember those? I got one of them here. Okay, remember these things? Terribly infuriating little pictures. Uh, they became very popular in the 90s. They were introduced in 1993. Uh, they were featured on several television shows. There was a famous episode of Friends where they had a magic eye that no one could figure out. Uh, and in other TV shows as well. And I hated these things because supposedly, if you focus your eye just right, you could see the 3D image emerge. But I never had eyes to see. I could never see the picture. We'd be walking through the mall with the friends. I see you guys staring intently at this. Matter of fact, I can't, I still can't see these things. I had John pick out one so that I didn't put up something here that I didn't know what it was. I was afraid I might put a picture that would be inappropriate or something. So John picked out the picture that I put up here because he has eyes to see. But I'd be walking through the mall with my friends and we come up to one of those kiosks, and there'd be all these, and everyone would go, oh, yeah, cool. And they all gather around and start looking at these things, and they'd ask the question, do you see anything? Do you see anything? And, and I would say, no, I don't. I just see a mesh of squiggly lines. I don't see it. And I hated it. I never had eyes to see those silly things. And it got to the point where I would just lie. I would say, Let me just confess. before I, I would just lie. I would say, oh, yeah, man, that's, that's awesome. What a neat Dolphin, right? Yeah, whoa. Uh, and I would just, you know, lie my way through it, but I hated it. Everyone else could see, but I couldn't. Like I said, I have no idea what that one even is right there. Today we come to a story about having eyes to see, about blindness and sight. As we come to today's text, we need to fight the temptation to view the gospel narratives, in this case Mark's narrative, as simply a collection of stories that have been thrown together. And if we would come at it that way, then we're going to come at the gospels from a very bad perspective. We're going to, it's going to be a huge mistake to come at the gospels in that sort of way. That would deprive us from some of the deeper meaning and some of the thematic purposes that Mark has in mind. Each gospel writer by the stories he chooses to include and in the order in which he chooses to share them, has certain themes and truths about Jesus and about the gospel that he is intentionally communicating. So today's text should not be studied by itself, devoid of its context. Instead, we need to look at the overall structure of today's text combined with some of the texts that we've already preached through here in Mark. And so, to see that structure... I want to remind you of what's happening so far in chapter 8. 
If you just look down at your Bibles and look at chapter 8 there, you'll see there was a miraculous feeding of 4,000, which was very much like the miraculous feeding of the 5,000 that was done in, with, among the Jews. He did a feeding of the 4,000 among the Gentiles in the area of the Decapolis. And that's found in verses 1 through 10 of chapter 8. And after that, Jesus crosses the sea to the district of Dal- Dalmanutha, where some Pharisees were confronting him and demanding to, for him to show them a sign. That's in verses 11 and 13. But Jesus won't appease their faithless, disingenuous sign-seeking, so he leaves them immediately, gets into the boat with his disciples to cross the sea yet again in verses 14 through 21. And it's at this point in verse 14 that Jesus warns his disciples, telling them to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Meaning the hypocritical, outward-focused, sign-seeking unbelief that was unable to grasp the radical faith needed in order to really embrace the gospel. But the disciples, upon hearing that word leaven, immediately began to think about bread because they had forgotten to bring bread with them when they got in the boat because they left so immediately uh, when the Pharisees were confronting Jesus. And so they forget, totally forget, that they had recently seen Jesus do not one but two miraculous feedings. And so they begin to worry and to argue about bread. And so at this point in verse 17, Jesus is fed up, no pun intended, fed up with their ignorance, and he gives them a sharp rebuke. And let me just read verse 17. Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Now listen to this, verse 18. Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? He then proceeds to remind them of the two feedings and of the overflow of abundance that he had graced them with. But in that rebuke, when Jesus says that in verse 18, having eyes do you not see and having ears do you not hear, he is, he's quoting Jeremiah 5. Now this incident where he highlights the unbelief of the disciples stands in stark contrast to what we see today in verses 27 through 30 where the disciples express their belief in Christ. Mark wants us to see how they moved from verse 17 to verse 27. He wants us to see how they went from these not seeing, not hearing, unbelieving disciples, at least not seeing fully, to disciples who would profess Jesus as the Christ. So, to help us see that, we need to see the overall structure. So, first of all, Jesus, right before the rebuke, or or just before the, the chapter 8, where we have the whole story of the feeding of the 4,000 and the Pharisees and the rebuke. In chapter 7, verses 31 through 37, we have one miracle that happens. And then in chapter 8, verses 22 through 26, the text we read today, we have another miracle that takes place. And those two miracles frame the whole story. Those two miracles frame what's happening here. And in that first miracle, Mark chapter 7, verses 31 through 37, Jesus heals a deaf man, and in the second one, he heals a blind man. That's not coincidence. Instead, Jesus' miracles are yet again functioning, functioning metaphorically, pointing to greater and deeper spiritual truths. Remember, Jesus' works always pointing to the word. Jesus' miracles always pointing to the message. And so there are spiritual truths about spiritual deafness and spiritual blindness that we're going to see in today's text. So let's look at these two miracles, though. I want to to make my point here. I want you to see how these two miracles 
the one that comes before the story and the one that comes here at, at, at the end of the story, at right, at the, right before they have this confession. I want you to see how they work together. So if you would, just if, you're, if you need to flip your Bible back a page, just go ahead and look at Mark chapter 7, verse 31. It says this, Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon uh, to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment, and they begged him to lay his hands on him. So hold your finger right there. Now look at Mark 8, verse 22, and listen to how similar this sounds. And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him... Okay, the first miracle, some people brought to him a deaf man this time, and some people brought to him a blind man, and again, begged him to touch him. So, two men, one deaf, one blind, both brought by other people, which, by the way, is a consistent theme in Mark's gospel of people always being brought to Jesus, which tells us something about our responsibility to introduce people to Jesus. So, both of them are brought by other people, who then, according to Mark, beg Jesus to heal these friends of theirs. Verse 33 of chapter 7 again. So now look back at chapter 7. It says, And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears, and after spitting, touched his tongue. Now listen to today's text, verse 23 of chapter 8. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, let me pause right there. I want you to see the similarity. So there's a a taking of the person aside, in one case, away from the crowd. In the other case, outside of the village. And then there is this bizarre spitting that occurs and the laying on of hands. So Jesus removes the person from the setting and then he spits as part of the healing process. And I know you were thinking, yuck, what is that all about? Well, there are only three healings recorded of Jesus's where he uses spit in the healing process. These two here, and then one in John chapter 9, a text I'll refer to in a bit, which also involves the healing of a blind man. Now, I'll be honest with you, scholars are baffled, really, as to why Jesus uses the spit. Some believe that Jesus was just sort of copying some of the practices of the day. That sometimes um, medicine men or healers or even doctors thought that there was medic- medicinal purposes for spit. And so they would use spit as sort of a medical cure. But I think Jesus is simply making a, a personal connection. An intimate connection with the person he's healing by giving them a very sensory experience. Spitting, putting that warm spit on the part of the body that needs to be healed. And in the process, he's strengthening their faith as, they, as he feels this, this spit on his eyes. I think there's a, there's a strengthening of the faith. It's kind of like, like parents, you can relate to this. When, when your kid comes to you and they have a scratch or a, a boo-boo, and, and maybe it's not an open boo-boo, it's just like a bruise or something, and what do they ask for immediately? A band-aid. Daddy, I just need a Band-Aid. And they're moaning and they're crying. And the moment you put that Band-Aid on that bruised area, it's like magic. It strengthens their faith all of a sudden that Daddy is taking care of me. So maybe it's something like that. It's a physical experience that strengthens the faith in the work that Jesus is doing. 
But the fact of the matter is, Jesus heals in a variety of different ways all throughout the Scriptures. Spurgeon rightly pointed out that if Jesus had chosen to heal everyone in the same manner, then we in our sinfulness would have begun to focus on the method instead of the man. So Jesus has a variety of different ways he heals. Now, let's go back to chapter 7 here. Let's finish chapter 7's story. Verse 34 says this. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephaphatha, which means to be opened. This is be opened. And his eyes were opened. His tongue was released. And he spoke plainly. And then in verse 36, we have a command from Jesus. We're still in chapter 7. And Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. Now let's look at today's text, continuing in verse 23. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And then, listen, verse 26, just like in verse 27, just like in chapter 7, we have a command. And he sent him to his home saying, Do not enter the village. And then, interestingly enough, after the chapter 7 healing in verse 37, we have the people who saw all, who heard about this and saw this confessing. He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf and hear and the mute to speak. And after today's miracle, we have Peter's confession. And so there are very, some, some very clear parallels between these two miracles, and they serve to frame this section of Scripture that we focused on last week and this week, which climaxed, last week's text climaxed with Jesus' rebuke of his disciples' deafness and his disciples' blindness. Both these miracles taken together are fulfillment of the scripture in Isaiah that Alex read at the beginning, Isaiah 35, 5. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. So here, here's my first point this morning. I want us to see that the removal of physical blindness in today's text points to the removal of spiritual blindness, which, as we'll see today, is outright moral inability. The removal of physical blindness in today's text points to the removal of spiritual blindness. And what is spiritual blindness? Spiritual blindness is outright moral inability. That's our first point for the day. It's no accident that the most common type of healing Jesus does during his earthly ministry is that of healing the blind. Jesus' miraculous deeds always communicated something about himself and something about his mission. The healing of blindness was to leave no doubt as to the power of God at work. To heal a blind person wasn't the same as healing someone with arthritis or gout or whatever. This was a, a, a stunning miracle, a uniquely powerful demonstration of a divine work. And the healing of physical blindness was a powerful living parable, a physical expression of a deeper and more important spiritual truth, namely that the type of healing that we need is to be healed from spiritual blindness. Blindness is consistently, that word blindness or darkness is consistently used in the scripture as a metaphor for human depravity and moral inability. Jesus himself often draws the connection between his healing of physical blindness and the deliverance from spiritual blindness. John chapter 9 makes that clear. In John chapter 9, in that passage, Jesus and his disciples encounter a man at the pool of Siloam in Jerusalem who is blind. We read in John chapter 9 verse 6 that Jesus spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. 
So he went and washed and came back seeing. Now the story goes on. The man was, uh, he was healed. He, then he was brought before the Pharisees because they, they, there's great commotion that's made because this man's been healed. He's brought before the Pharisees. They don't believe him. They bring in his parents and say, is this your son? Was he really born blind? They're freaked out and scared of the Pharisees. And they say, hey, he can answer for himself. So they keep pressing this guy. And they say, no, this, you couldn't have been healed by this Jesus because we know he's a sinner. And this is his response. John chapter 9, verse 25, the blind man. Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They end up casting him out of the synagogue, which means that he was excommunicated from the synagogue. In John chapter 9, verse 35, we read this. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir, that I might believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. And he said, Lord, I believed, and he worshipped him. Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. Now listen to Jesus make the connection. Mark, I mean, John chapter 9, verse 39, Jesus said this. Immediately after this man's profession of faith, this is what Jesus says. For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. He is, of course, here referring to spiritual sight at this point. But the whole story, the healing of this man, and the subsequent events were physical metaphors of the spiritual realities. So over and over again in the Bible, God refers to sinful man as being in darkness or being blind. And there are three types of spiritual blindness mentioned in the scriptures. First of all, there's natural blindness, meaning that we are born in sin. It's part of our sinful nature that we are blind to the truth. Psalm 82.5 says they have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. Romans 1.21, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. So that's a natural blindness that all men are born with. But secondly, in the Scripture, sometimes there's judicial blindness. God sends deeper, further blindness upon people in judgment. John chapter 12, verse 40, this is Jesus' words. He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah 29, 10, for the Lord has poured out upon you a spirit of deep sleep and has closed your eyes. Blaise Pascal once said, in faith there is enough light for those who want to believe and enough shadows to blind those who don't. So there is natural blindness, there is judicial blindness, and then there's also satanic blindness. Peter read of this in the section, the scripture he read between the songs, 2 Corinthians 4, I'll just read verse 4. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And so it should be no surprise to us that it's stated in various places in the Old Testament that the Messiah's mission would be to open blind eyes, both physical and spiritual. The physical healings during Jesus' earthly ministry pointed to the spiritual recovery of sight, and all those who are given spiritual sight are thereby guaranteed to be part of the new heavens and the new earth where we'll all have perfect physical sight as well. So, the man in the beginning of today's text is physically blind, and we see that paralleled with the spiritual blindness in the second part of today's text. Let's look at now at verse 27 of Mark chapter 8. 
Verse 27. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? So let's check the opinion polls. What's, what's everybody saying, guys? What's the opinion polls about me? What are you hearing? Okay, and they respond. They told him, John the Baptist. And others say, Elijah. And others, one of the prophets. This whole thing right here where Jesus is asking them, what are people saying about me, simply reflects the fact that most of the people were blind, were spiritually blind. They refused to see and believe who Jesus really is. Some, like Herod, think that he's a resurrected John the Baptist. Others think that he's Elijah because Elijah was one of the Old Testament prophets that did a lot of miracles. And others think that he's a different prophet. Notice all of these are prophetic figures. The people don't see that Jesus is not just any other prophet. Nor do people see that all of these prophets were given to the people to point to Jesus. Jesus isn't one of these guys. Jesus is the reason that these guys ministered in the first place. Jesus is the one they proclaimed. But the people are blind. They cannot see who he really is. Isn't that the same today? People have a lot of opinions about Jesus. Some think he was an idealistic political revolutionary. Some say he was a sacrificial social warrior. Others just say he was simply a, a misunderstood but good man. Blind, blind, blind. And unfortunately, just as in Jesus' days, there are teachers in our culture today. Teachers who claim to be teachers of God's word. Who do, as Matthew fifteen fourteen say says they are blind guides, blind leading the blind, both falling into a pit. So people are born spiritually blind, without moral inability, and God would, would not be unjust to leave people in their blindness because this blindness is a willful, rebellious blindness. God would be just to leave every person in the universe, every person in the world, in a state of darkness. Matter of fact, without God's intervention, we love the darkness. Jesus says that in John chapter 3, verse 19. And this is the judgment. Light has come into the world, and people love darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. I had an interaction this week on a Facebook, um, I won't call it an argument, but I have a, I'm on a Facebook group that's for missionary kids, and someone had posted an article. It was an awful article about um, you know not blaming tragedies on God. And I, so I just responded to it, and some raving atheist gets on there. Yes, there are a lot of missionary kids turned into atheists. Some atheist gets on there and starts going at it with me, and, um, and so another person sort of teamed up with me and, and said, listen, if you turn your back on God, you're walking in darkness, and this was his response. He says, some of us can see in the dark. He loved his darkness. He loved his darkness, and a matter of fact, I, I stopped interacting at that point. I posted on Facebook this week that God's helping me wrestle with those two passages in Proverbs 26. One tells you to answer a fool according to his folly. The other one says don't answer a fool according to his folly. Guess what? There's some people who have eyes that are dim and being enlightened. And they're saying foolish things like posting stupid articles that aren't really reflecting true theology about God's sovereignty. Those people interact with them. Help them see the truth. There are other people that love the darkness. They hate the light. Don't worry about that. 
You can share the gospel with them. But ultimately, there comes a point when you stop and you say, I can't answer this fool anymore. And so I experienced that this week. Someone who absolutely loved his darkness. Yet, even though many will respond that way, we're still sent. I'm not saying stop sharing the gospel. I'm saying be strategic in how you share the gospel. We cannot be fatalists who say, oh, well, only God can open eyes, so there's nothing I can do about it. No, if we are well-rounded in our understanding of the Scriptures, then we know that God's means for opening blind eyes is the sharing of the gospel. It's the gospel message that opens the eyes. The gospel that teaches us exactly what Peter confessed, that Jesus is Lord, Messiah, Savior, Son of the living God. That confession of Jesus' lordship is the truth on which the church is built. That's what I believe Jesus is referring to in his play on words in Matthew's version of this story. Matthew 16, verse 18. I tell you, you are Peter, little rock. And on this rock, big rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The church is built not on Peter, but on Jesus, on the confession that he is Lord. So we, you and I, are to faithfully proclaim who Jesus really is, trusting that God in his providence will open blind eyes as he sees fit. Our mission is the same as that given to to the Apostle Paul by Jesus in Acts chapter 26, verse 17, that we read of in Acts chapter 26, verse 17. Jesus says to Paul, I am sending you to open their eyes so they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God that they may, be received, they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So the man in today's story was blind, and the disciples in the boat with Jesus back in chapter 8 were at least partially blind. They didn't yet see who he truly was. And just as the blind man was unable to deal with his own condition, so too the disciples are not in their own strength able to overcome their own blindness. And this is evidenced by their repeated failure to understand what Jesus was doing. And that leads me to my second point. The removal of physical blindness in today's text points to the removal of spiritual blindness, which is healed, only healed, supernaturally. Spiritual blindness is only healed supernaturally. The friends must take this man to Jesus in verse 22 and beg Jesus because they recognize that Jesus is the only hope for this blind man. Jesus is the only hope for spiritual blindness. Jesus is the only hope for physical blindness, and spiritual blindness. Blindness can only be healed by the power of Jesus. There's a reason blindness is a metaphor used so frequently in Scripture for our condition. Blindness is desperate. Blindness is incurable. And we, we stand before God in a default setting of blindness, as I said earlier. But let me say it again, 1 Corinthians 2.14. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. If that text is true, then the only hope is to be miraculously, supernaturally delivered from the blindness by God's sovereign grace. And that's what happens to the man who's healed. We read at the end of verse 25 that his sight was restored and he saw everything clearly. And we see the disciples come into that spiritual light. Verse 29. And he asked them, who do you say that I am? That's the most important question in the universe. And we see Peter as the head and the leader of this group. I think he's answering for the whole group, to be honest with you. Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And just like that, sight. 
Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. These are the glorious words that Charles Wesley wrote in that hymn that we're so familiar with. This new spiritual sight was in no way due to anything the disciples had done or had merited. Matter of fact, their actions had only produced further blindness. It was sovereign grace alone. And Matthew's gospel makes that abundantly clear. Matthew 6, 16, verse 6. But I don't want you just to take my word for it. Flip your Bibles over. Matthew chapter 16, verse 6. This is important. So Jesus asked the question, the same question we have in Mark. And Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Verse 17. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. Listen, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. The disciples could no more remove their own spiritual blindness than could that man at the beginning of today's text remove his physical blindness. This is the consistent testimony of Scripture. Man must be awakened and given sight in order to believe. Acts chapter 16, verse 13. We have this wonderful story of Paul and Silas coming into Philippi. And we read this. On the Sabbath day, we went out to the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Colossians 1 verse 13. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his son. One moment we were blind, hating God, not knowing Jesus, stumbling in sin and shame. And the next moment we see, we turn from sin and we know Jesus and it's love at first sight. Not physical sight, spiritual sight. 1 Peter 1, 8, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Hebrews 11, 1, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. What we can't see with our physical eyes, we see with our spiritual eyes when those eyes are opened. And like I said, it's love at first sight. You show me someone who doesn't love Jesus, who has no desire to obey his commands, who has no desire for his word, who has no desire to be in community with his people, who therefore evidences no desire, no love for Jesus himself. I will show you someone whose spiritual eyes have never been open, and I don't care if they're on the roll of a church and they've been sitting there for 30 years. Spiritual sight, faith, and belief. Now, it's not always perfect. It's not always 2020 at first. And that's the truth also demonstrated in the healing from today's text. And so in the subsequent actions of the disciples, we see my final point for this morning. The removal of physical blindness in today's text points to the removal of spiritual blindness, which is often eliminated progressively. Let's go back to the story of the blind man. We see a very interesting and unique thing happen. Verse 23. 
And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? Now, this is the only time in all of the recorded scripture where Jesus asks the person he's healing that type of a question. Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. So it's very clear this man's healing isn't complete at this point. His sight isn't complete at this point. Then Jesus laid his hands on him, verse 25, again, and he opened his eyes His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Literally, this last word, clearly, seeing everything clearly, means to see everything from afar, which was a way of them saying he had 20-20 vision at this point. Perfect vision. Perfect sight, but not initially. Why? Have you ever wondered why this story happens? Why? I mean, did Jesus lack spiritual power? I mean, the the power to heal those eyes at the the first, first time? Was that like a false start? Did he mess up? Was it not enough spit? What's happening? Commentators stumble all over themselves trying to figure out why Jesus only does a partial healing here. This is the only place that this happens in Scripture. Many of the commentators I read simply conclude there's no explanation. But friends, there is a very clear explanation, and it's seen in the text. Those same commentators who seem to see the connection between the physical blindness and the spiritual blindness fail to see how it is fully fleshed out in the disciples' own actions. They fail to connect it with the disciples' spiritual sight. Look with me. We have this glorious confession of Peter, and I believe it's on behalf of all the disciples, that Jesus is the anointed one, the deliverer, the prophet, priest, king, who would save his people. So they have sight, they have light, they see. But the great vision and the great sight they have that's exhibited in that confession is almost immediately dimmed in the verses that follow. Look at verse 29. And he asked them, well, let me, let me move on past verse 29 to verse 31. And he began to teach them, so he's teaching, he's giving them more light, that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly, it's not just more light, it's bright light. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, this is a clue that Peter is speaking for all of them, by the way. Turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Peter and the disciples, they had seen who Jesus was. And they did so only by the sovereign grace of God. But then they turned right around and demonstrated they still didn't see everything fully. They were like the man in the healing, seeing men that looked like trees. Their vision was dim, it was blurred, it was incomplete. And the rest of Jesus' earthly ministry will be a gradual unveiling and a gradual uh, opening of their eyes and a removal of their blurry vision. But even after his resurrection, they have blurred vision. They didn't anticipate it. They didn't anticipate that he would rise from the grave. And then even in the ongoing story of Acts, we see that the disciples didn't fully get the Great Commission. They struggled to understand what to do with old covenant regulations, and so on, and so on, and so on. So there is a sense in which, even after our eyes are open to who Christ is, we, as long as we are in these bodies, will continue to need more spiritual vision. And we continue to have our eyes opened by God's grace. And only when we are with Christ, and I'm talking about imperfection, only when we are with Christ in glory will we have Perfect 2020 vision that sees from afar. 1 Corinthians 3.12. For now we see in a mirror dimly. 
but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. John Newton, the author of Amazing Grace. I once was blind, but now I see, right? Said this, where the eyes are divinely enlightened, where the eyes are divinely enlightened, the soul's first view of itself and of the gospel may be confused and indistinct, like him who saw men as it were trees walking. Yet this light is like the dawn, which, though weak and faint at its first appearance, shines more and more unto the perfect day. It is the work of God, and his work is perfect in kind, though progressive in manner. Did you hear that? His work is perfect in kind, but progressive in manner. Philippians 1.6, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. You see, unlike our physical eyes, which dim and get blurrier as we mature in age, our spiritual eyes get clearer and more illuminated as we mature in spirituality. And so, can you not personally testify to this truth? I can Do you not see better now spiritually than you did 10 years ago? I'm even thankful for debates sometime. If you you follow Reformed blogs, you know there's been a debate over the last couple of weeks about the Trinity. And I've thoroughly enjoyed it. Some of the debates gotten a little bit heated. But the reason I've enjoyed it is because it sent me to the scriptures and it sent me to the books to dig deeper into the nature of the Trinity. And I've, it's just been like a feast for me. And it's been so enjoyable. Because I'm seeing God more the more I study who he is. And that should be happening to all of us. So let me draw a couple of concluding comments and applications for the sermon today. Believer. First, praise God and God alone that you see anything. That you see anything at all regarding the gospel. This text should stir you up to gospel-centered adoration and thanksgiving. You have been given eyes to see. You have been given the, the, you, you can see the magic eye picture. You have a magic eye. You see Jesus, and that is all God's work. Secondly, believer, you are still growing, and you are being sanctified. Do not, in foolishness, think that your sight is better than it is. That will often lead you to missing logs protruding from your own eyes that rudely conk people up the side of the head when you're trying to remove their specks. Romans 12, 3 says, For by the grace given to me, I say to every man among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. So don't be like the disciples, namely Peter, who after having such a glorious experience of light, then turned and fixed his eyes on the things of man instead of the things of God. Ephesians 4, 17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. And if you're an unbeliever here this morning, that last part of that verse, that describes you. Unless, unless today... Your heart has been moved to repent and turn to Jesus. And if so, I invite you to come and talk with me this morning about Jesus. Not the Jesus Jesus that the opinion polls talk about, but the Jesus who is God's Messiah, sent to die for sinners, to take God's wrath upon his shoulders. He stands ready to forgive and to progressively open your eyes to glories unimaginable. Let's pray.
Father, we praise you and we thank you that you in your sovereign mercy and in your sovereign grace decided to open the eyes of blind rebels like all of us here in this room. If there's any confession of faith that we've made, any hope that we've put in Christ, any decision we've made, any asking of Jesus in our heart, any of these phrases that so often point to us, it is solely because you, in your grace, opened our eyes. Help us not to forget that. Instead, let that truth stir us up to white-hot worship. And Lord, there be any unbelievers in the room this morning. Lord, I pray that your word has cut them to the heart, that they would see that they are spiritually bankrupt. They have nothing in of themselves to offer you. They cannot come and say that they've seen anything because they're blind. Instead, Lord, if they've been cut to the heart by your word and you've given them a, a, a quickened heart, then, Father, I pray that their eyes would be opened and today would be the day they would do exactly what Peter did. And say, yes, you are the Christ. You are the Son of the living God. God of God. And only through you, and only because of the work you've done, Jesus, can I be saved. Oh, Lord, that's my prayer for any in here today who may not know you yet. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.